0: This reading is from 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 to 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, and night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power, of love and of self-discipline.
1: Okay, you see an outline of what I'm going to be saying on page, what is it, eight and nine, eight and nine. Now, it's been a long day, hasn't it, and it's been a long trip to get down to here And uh, there's a certain degree still of unsettled in uh, getting ready for bed and the rest tonight. So it'd be really good if I gave just a simple brief outline of where we're going. But I'm not going to. I'm going to give you a full talk. (laughs) Just thought I'd warn you up front uh, as we go. I can abbreviate it, but that's not going to help all that much. So... Strap yourself in, here we go, Uh, get your Bibles open and or, no, we need our Bibles open because other things are going to come up on the PowerPoint and uh, of that passage that we've just read. I do thank you for the invitation of being here this weekend and we're just going to look at the first two chapters of 2 Timothy, Uh, maybe in the hope that you'll invite me back to come and do chapters 3 and 4 some other time. But here's the outline of the talk, On but it's printed for us, on confidence in the gospel, which is the very first one of these. Now, back in 2007, a, a journalist wrote of returning to the religion of her family. She wrote, Like a prodigal daughter, I strayed from the path of righteousness. After years of questioning the belief system of my parents, I've made the predictable return to their way of thinking, and I have returned to atheism. Here's the child of atheism, point one, child of atheism. Now, who now as an adult has returned to her atheism. This is the coming out of atheists that Professor Dawkins is wanting to encourage. The the get out of the closet is what his message is. There's lots of your atheists, come and acknowledge it. Well, she has. As a number of heathens grow, there'll be more people like me, people who have not chosen atheism as a conscious, rational choice. Second-generation atheists who choose atheism in the same way most people choose religion because it is what they were taught by their families and the indoctrination has left them with a gut feeling that it is not easy to escape. A second-generation atheist. But this is unusual for atheists generally pride themselves upon their individualism and upon their inquiry into the truth. They believe in the Enlightenment myth of the objective human mind deciding on the basis of facts the truths of life. But her religion was not like that. Her religious leanings are not chosen as a conscious, rational choice. She admits atheism isn't perfect. But it has one great advantage, she says. Not everything about atheism is perfect, but the overall values are positive and life-affirming and should be encouraged. Children raised as atheists know their minds are their own. They don't believe every private thought is monitored by a higher being and so on. So now she wishes to raise her own children as atheists. When the time comes... I will raise my children as atheists because I want them to have all the advantages and values I enjoyed as a child. At heart, I'm a conservative, she says, who believes in family values, and I think it would be nice for my parents to see our tradition of heathenism carried on. Atheism is a wonderful gift to give to children. But this journalist, this atheistic journalist, forgets that according to her great hero, Professor Richard Dawkins, Raising your children by your religion is child abuse. He wrote, Small children are too young to decide their views on the origins of the cosmos, of life and of morals. The very sound of the phrase, Christian child or Muslim child, should grate like fingernails on a blackboard. The kind of family religion of atheism that our journalist was commending is the exact opposite of the atheism of of the atheists, especially the atheist Professor Dawkins. For Dawkins, atheism is intellectual individualism. And so religion, even atheism, mustn't be bequeathed on our children. They should be taught how to think and not what to think. And they should not bear a name that they have not chosen for themselves. Now, of course, Professor Dawkins shows a total failure to understand children, humanity and families and even the thinking process. It's not possible to be taught how to think without at the same time being taught what to think. That's an educational nonsense. The journalist, not Professor Dawkins, is right. Family religion is a powerful teacher of us all. Whether our family teaches us atheism, agnosticism, cynicism or one of the more classic religions, it's inevitable that the actions and words of parents will teach children the family religion. You can't abdicate your responsibility to raise your children. It's a myth that you can leave them to make up their own mind. What you teach them under such a system as that is indifference to all matters of great truth and life. It's the way to raise an agnostic to leave the child to make its own mind up. It's the way to raise uncommitted people who don't trust anybody or anything. If that is your religion, then fair enough. But don't pretend that you're raising your children to follow their own desires. They're following their parents' religion. Children are born into families. Different families have different philosophies, lifestyles, music tastes, sporting preferences and religions. They speak different languages and they consequently think in different forms. People will raise their children as they see fit and their children will be known by their family till they reach adulthood. Then they will choose to conform to their parents' view, like our journalist, or they'll rebel against their upbringing. Some, like our atheistic journalist, will do so out of an unconscious irrational indoctrination. Others will do it out of a conscious rational choice we baptize babies with the understanding that they come when they come of age they will take the promises upon themselves in confirmation we never assume that having baptized the baby that they are made automatically christian for all their lives or that they do not have to make up their own mind when they come of age to do so so let's turn to these first two chapters of the second letter of Paul to Timothy. It's written by the apostle from jail, where he was expecting not to be released, but to die. He wrote asking young Timothy to visit him in jail and to carry on the very work that landed Paul in prison. Tonight we're just looking at the first seven verses, and here we find the family, the family of faith in action. From verse 3 we read of Paul's forefathers. I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did with a clear conscience. Paul was very self-consciously Jewish, proudly Jewish. He believed, as his forefathers had, in the creator of the world who had chosen the nation Israel to be his people. God had rescued them out of slavery in Egypt under Moses. He'd spoken to them at Mount Sinai through Moses. He'd given them the law by which he would have them to live as his people. And when Paul thinks of his young protege, Timothy, he remembers the faith of Timothy's grandmother and mother, Lois and Eunice. Verse 5, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I'm persuaded now also lives in you also. We don't know if Timothy's father was a Christian, We don't know from Acts. What we do know from Acts is that Timothy's father was not Jewish. Presumably the reference to the mother and grandmother, Timothy's father, was not a Christian. But that's a presumption. We don't know. But we do know that both his grandmother and mother were Christians and the powerful influence of these women seemed to have borne fruit not only in their own life but in his life. If you'll turn over the page in your Bible or f- through the uh, phone in your phone, wherever it is, it's really difficult for preachers that people preach from phones because in the days of Bibles, we always knew whether you'd turn the page over or not. But now it's silent, this kind of scrolling business, and we never know whether you're up to it or not, to say nothing of that there are some naughty children that play in games rather, but we won't mention them. <laughs> However... If you just scroll through to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, you see the influence of these women. But as for you, continue in what you have learnt and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learnt it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. Never underestimate the powerful influence of mothers and grandmothers, especially the praying variety, nor the importance of teaching the Bible to little children. There was a great children's worker, Scripture Union worker, who died a year or so ago, uh, Owen Shelley. And Owen Shelley had as one of his lines, Never underestimate the underrate. And he's right, never underestimate the power of being taught the Word of God properly from childhood. The work that you do in loving care of your little ones, can have great effect in their growth and development. The growth and development of your children and your grandchildren. Keep praying for them. Keep reading the scriptures to them. Keep commending them to God and God to them. But there's another family in the family of faith. For notice how Timothy is called in verse 2 back to chapter 1, Paul's dear son. Often in the New Testament we read of Timothy and often Paul refers to him in these loving family terms. So in 1 Corinthians 4 we read, That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. Or in Philippians 2, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Or in 1 Timothy 1, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. And here in 2 Timothy 1, to Timothy, my dear son. And it's not just a formal greeting, for we can see the affection of the older man for the younger man when he writes towards the end of verse 3. About night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears. I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. There is a real relationship of Christian love and affection between Paul and his young colleague, his protege, Timothy. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ whom I hardly but know, we're not to be removed from and remote in our affections for each other. As we talk and as we pray, about the great issues of life and about what's happening in your life and what's happening in my life. As we share our lives together, we are to be caring for each other for we live together in families. And so we serve together in the family of Christ Jesus with all the affection and interpersonal relationships that will inevitably influence how we see life. Our congregational life together is critically important. Well done for being on this camp. Shame on those who didn't sacrifice <laughs> and come to be with us. We can say that here, can't we? But if you're listening to a recording of this later, shame. <laughs> uh, you should have come and been amongst us. For it is important that we spend time with each other, that we learn each other, that we pray for each other, that we bear each other's burdens. But Timothy's family's faith is a sincere faith. Paul is sure of the sincerity of Timothy's faith, just as he was sure the sincerity of Lois and Eunice's faith before him. There is a genuineness that goes beyond trying to please the people we like, a genuineness that goes beyond the indoctrination of our parents. There's that sincere faith that comes from the profound conviction Of the truth of what you believe. Paul saw it in Timothy, as he'd seen it before in Timothy's mother and grandmother. He could now see that it dwelt in Timothy also. Paul also remembered the special gift that Timothy had received. Paul had laid his hands in prayer upon the young man in verse 6 For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He doesn't tell us what the gift of God was. He did not need to tell Timothy, because Timothy knew. Both he and Timothy knew what he was talking about. We, unfortunately, don't. It may well have been a gift for ministering the word of God, for if you turn back or scroll back to 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 to 15, just back a page or so, 1 Timothy 4, verses 13 to 15, he says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to the preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands upon you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. This was Timothy's ministry, a ministry of teaching, preaching, reading the Bible. So presumably that was the gift given to him in response to the prayers of the elders and the apostles here back in 2 Timothy 1.6, Timothy was once more to activate the gift, to, to fan it into flame. For the job that Paul had now in mind for him, a job that could only be described as a fearful prospect, was to continue Paul's work, joining Paul in prison for the gospel. Let me give it to you again so that you just grasp it. This letter is an invitation to join Paul In prison for the gospel. That is a fearful prospect. Just ponder it for a moment. The man who has been most important in your life, in the gospel in the Lord Jesus, the man who's mentored you in the faith, the man who has looked after you, the man with whom you have served, writes to you and says, I'm in prison for the gospel, I'm gonna die here, but I want you to come and join me. This is not an easy invitation. But this special gift of Timothy was related to the universal gift given to all Christians. For the gift may not have been the special gifts of ministry so much as the gift of the Spirit himself. The gift not of a a spirit of fear and cowardice, but the gift of the spirit of love and power and self-discipline. This gift is given to all who named the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not that Timothy had a particular problem of fearful timidity. It wasn't a character default or something. He was being invited to do something that was very, very brave for anybody. He was being reminded that the spirit given to us is a spirit of love, power and self-control. So that Timothy faced with the awesome task to continue Paul's ministry, which had led Paul to prison, faced with the persecution and the imprisonment, is being challenged to use his special gift of ministry in the light of the universal gift of the Holy Spirit to come and do the same things that got Paul into prison. Let's spend a moment then thinking of the Spirit. The spirit that's been given to us, to each and every one of us, if we name the name of Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and God as our Father. The, The spirit is not of fear. It's the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, the Holy Spirit of God. God the Spirit himself, God the Almighty. So this is not a spirit of cowardice, fearfulness or timidity. We're not to cower in fear of the opponents of the gospel who may ridicule us or persecute us, who may place us in prison or call the police to arrest us. You know, you and I worry about a rebuff from our neighbour. Paul is dealing with being executed, being locked up in prison. That's what Timothy is facing. We're to take our stand unashamed of the gospel. Unashamed of the apostle of the gospel, professing Christ and Him crucified to all who would give to whom we would give this account, and to all who would call us to account. What about you, friends? Do you feel nervous? Embarrassed to be known as a Christian, to be known as a believer in the Bible? At school or in the universities, in the in the tutorial that you're in? Or at work, at morning tea time, uh, knock-off time, up and down the street with the children as you pick them up from school, with the wider family. By nature, we would have every right to be ashamed, to be fearful and anxious, and to keep our light as buried deep down under a bushel as we could possibly make it. For our society generally does not welcome Christians gladly especially not the ones who speak in favour of the Christ and who want to read the Bible. But this isn't a matter of being natural, this is a matter of being supernatural. The Spirit of God gave us and the Spirit that has been given to us is not a spirit of fear. But, see where the alternative, verse 7, but the Spirit has these three key characteristics, attributes, power, love, self-discipline. The Holy Spirit is often associated with power in the scriptures, though it's not always the power to change things, rather it's often the power to endure things cheerfully. Romans chapter 15 verse 13 says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Not so by the power of the Holy Spirit you'll be able to do miracles, not by the power of the Holy Spirit you'll be able to change things, but by the Holy Spirit you may continue, you may endure, you may continue in hope. The Apostle's power was seen in his sufferings. It was God's power that protected him and enabled him to endure the shameful sufferings. Remember, my friends, we are following the one who died on a cross. It was profoundly shameful. It was a massive defeat. There's lots of ways to kill a person. Crucifying is one of the most messy and difficult ones to be bothered with. I mean, chop the man's head off, run a spear through him, put a sword through him. there's any ways Roman soldiers could kill you, why did they crucify people? Well, because it was a public statement. You put a man up at a cross and you watch him die slowly over a couple of days. And it declares to everybody else, you mess with us, we've got a cross for you. And you see him out there publicly as the birds gather around. They didn't wait for the body to die to start taking the flesh off and plucking the eyes out. It was a shameful, appalling way of saying we're defeated, we're destroyed, we are but nobody, we are but nothing. As naked you hung on a cross to face the ignominy and shameful oppression of Roman tyranny. It was a powerful political statement. That's the one we're following. That's the one who said to us, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. The Spirit, you see, the Spirit is the one who gives the power to endure. Not the power to avoid the cross, the power to endure the cross, the shameful suffering. Why you see it in the next verse, verse 8. I've written down the wrong words here. Who's going to read verse 8 for us? Loud voice. Thank you. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. That's Go on. clever. Yes. Go on. Oh, that's on. Oh. Yeah. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. It's an invitation to share in suffering. Why would you share in the suffering for the gospel? Unless you're a masochist or unless you really believed in the gospel. Because if you believed in the gospel, you've been given the spirit not only of power but also of love. For in the gospel, the love of God has been shed into our hearts by the Spirit who has been given to us so that we may know the self-sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christians know what Romans 5.8 teaches. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, we now have the spirit of this self-sacrificial love by which we have been saved, so that we should willingly, sacrificially love others, that they too may be saved. So what if they make fun of me? What if they ridicule me at the office? What if they may attack me and be rude to me or about me? It's by standing up for Jesus, it's by my suffering for Jesus that others may be saved. If I keep my head down, I won't be persecuted. If I keep my mouth shut, no one will say anything about it. If I don't let anybody know anything about the gospel of Jesus, I will live a safe, secure Australian life and others around me would never hear the gospel of their salvation. That is not following the Lord Jesus. My discomfort is nothing compared to the cross of Jesus. The spirit of love that I have received teaches me that their salvation is more important than what others think of me or may do to me. And thirdly, we've received the spirit of self-discipline. It's an interesting aspect of the Spirit's work. For most people of the New Age movement want a spirit that will overcome self, self self-control, self-discipline. They want a spirit that will overwhelm us, so that we will dance in the streets, so that we will roll on the floor laughing, so that we will... But the Holy Spirit of the living God gives us life under self-control, self-discipline. Part of the fruit of the Spirit, if you remember, is self-control, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control. That's why when the Toronto blessing came so many years ago when people started rolling around on the floors laughing and out, you knew it wasn't the Holy Spirit. That's why when people slay you in the spirit and you fall down as if dead, that can't be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit gives self-control, not loss of control. It's the exact reverse. The word here for self-discipline means living under wisdom, being sensible, wising up in life, living by what you know. So we do not act out of fear or out of anxiety or out of group pressure but soberly and sensibly, knowing the right thing to do and doing it. My dear friends, in the public life of Australia today, we're confronted more and more with hostility to all things of church and Christianity. And so we need to have confidence in the gospel, the confidence that comes from God's gift of the Spirit, the confidence that will not flinch in the battle but will stand firm and endure the suffering that comes with a stand. Will you join me in the the testimony about our Lord Jesus Christ? It means sacrifice. It will bring backlash. It will make you unpopular. For we will be seen as divisive or that worst of all possible things in Australia today, extremists, accused of being fundamentalists, but it's as we testify about the Lord's death and resurrection that some people will be saved. So we're not to be afraid, but out of our love for the lost, the love that God saw his own son die for, out of the confidence in God's power, the power to endure whatever suffering may come our way, and out of our self-control, the self-discipline that acts upon what we know and not the irrationality of fear, let us testify to the Lord and share with the Apostle and Timothy in the sufferings of the Gospel. And this confidence in the Gospel starts in our homes. For how else would we want to raise our family but by what is best for them? And it means that we will continue to teach children taking every opportunity in schools and clubs to teach them the truth that is in Christ Jesus, for that's the best for them. A few years ago, I was reported to the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service of South Australia, the Child Protection Society, the Commissioner for Children and Young People, the International Society for Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect. Kids First Foundation, Ms Irene Moss, the Commissioner of Independent Commission Against Corruption, the Office for Children, Youth and Family Support of the ACT, the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, the the Australian Council for Children and Youth Organisation, the Commissioner for Children in Tasmania and the Editor of Quadrant. I was reported to all of them. The charge that was leveled against me came from a Christmas carol service where a visitor who reported me to all those organizations, wrote I am appalled that you should lie, particularly to children in the congregation. When you said a host of angels appeared to the shepherds in the field, that is the truth. He continued It's not the truth. It's what you but it's your belief. And to give children some misguided idea that the law of physics can be suspended without any evidence is wrong. For a person in position of authority over children, it's termed abuse. In this case, mental abuse. We are living in a hostile community. Hostile to the gospel, hostile to the gospel being preached and being spoken. It's becoming harder and harder in Australia. Mind you, dear brothers and sisters, not very hard compared to the Christians in Iraq. Not very hard to the Christians in Syria. You know, this is, this is Mickey Mouse stuff, but it's new for Australia and it's new for Australian Christians. This century is going to be a terrible struggle for Christians in Australia in relationship to the government. Church and state is going to be a big issue for us this century because persecution is coming again. See, that was the influence of Richard Dawkins. The new battle lines being drawn. It's another attempt to muzzle Christians from teaching God's word. What do you teach your children about God? Teach them the truth in the spirit who's not of fear but of power and love and self-discipline. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that... He set his face resolutely to go to Jerusalem. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that he gave witness, gave testimony to the truth for Pilate and did not shrink back. We thank you, Father, that he did not consider the shame of the cross, but rather continued to bring glory to you in his death and salvation to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that each one of us here might be so persuaded so convinced of the truth of the gospel that our faith, the faith that many of us have inherited, might be a faith that is sincere. And that that faith and that sincerity of this family, that we would stand firm, that we would not shrink back in fear, but that we would faithfully, in the confidence of the gospel, testify to the truth of the gospel of our Lord and Saviour, and of his apostle, who's written to us in your word by the inspiration of your spirit. And, Father, that we would have such endowment of your spirit that we would indeed act, not in fear, but in the power of the spirit, in the love that he gives, and in self-discipline and control. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.